Lord God, as we come before you now and we stand before your word, I pray that we would not stand in judgment of it, but we would allow it to critique us, that it would speak into our lives and where our lives are not in conformity to your word, that you would rebuke us, reveal it to us, and restore us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If you would, please take out your copy of God's Word, turn to Hebrews chapter 12, and if you're using the Bible that's in your row, that'll be on page 1009, but I need to give you a little bit of context. Last week, we started this section uh, that begins in verse 18, and it'll run through the end of the chapter. We're going to look at a portion of it today, and this section really is the crescendo of the whole book. Uh, if you think of this book as an, uh, a lawyer making uh, a case, this is really his closing argument. He's bringing it all together. And it's actually, as we saw last week, it's a comparison between two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. But his interest is not about geography, it's about worship. At, at Sinai, that was the place that God led the people out of Egyptian slavery and he gathered them in holy convocation. It was their first corporate worship service together as God's people since they had been in slavery. And it was an extraordinary display of the power and might of God as thunder rumbled forth and, and trumpets blared from heaven and lightning, forks of lightning peeled across the sky. The people were in awe and, and they felt this deep sense within their, the core of their being that they did not belong there. They didn't belong in the presence of such a, a holy God. That was Mount Sinai. And the author of Hebrews then contrasts it with what happens at Mount Zion. Now Mount Zion, it was the highest point in Jerusalem, but it came to be representative of the presence of God with his people. And so when it talks about Mount Zion here, it's actually talking about what happens every time Christians gather in corporate worship. Zion, compared to Sinai, it's nowhere near as visually intense. In fact, from an earthly standpoint, when Christians gather together in worship, it's not a very impressive thing, at least to human eyes, because the real business of, of what we're doing when we gather together takes place in heaven. When we are called into worship and when we are worshiping together, we are worshiping not just with those in this room, but the saints all over the world who are worshiping in Jesus Christ according to his word and all throughout the ages. And we're even joining our voices with the angels and the heavenly hosts around the throne of God. But unlike Sinai, at Sinai, people trembled because they knew they could not draw near. At Zion, we are commanded to draw near. God beckons us to draw near. What's the difference? Well, the difference is that Christ has come, and through the grace of Jesus, we draw near. We, we sang this last week. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. And so rather than the terror and dread of Sinai, when we gather together at Zion, it is joy and life. Now, at the same time, the author of Hebrews knows that there is a danger for us as we come to Zion, as humanly speaking unimpressive as it is, 
there's a danger that we would not respond with awe and reverence like we ought. And he doesn't want us to presume upon the safety and security we have through the grace of Christ by thinking that we can take our privileges and our responsibilities lightly. Because our privileges have increased with Jesus coming, so too should our sense of reverence and awe before God in worship. So in other words, grace does not make worship more casual than it was at Mount Sinai. It transforms our worship to be far more reverent because when we gather to worship, we are gathering together at Mount Zion in heaven in the awesome presence of our holy God. That's the context for what he's saying today. Listen now to Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse uh, 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. January 2nd, 1956 was the day that Jim Elliott had been waiting on for years. Jim was a very gifted athlete and student, and he left it all to go to Ecuador for the sake of the gospel. And after three years of planning and strategizing, it all culminated in this day as Jim and four other missionaries were going to finally make contact with the Aka Indians in order to share the gospel with them. The Aka were a fierce Ecuadorian tribe who had killed every outsider who had ever made contact with them. Now, several days after Jim and the other missionaries landed on a beach near the Aka village, they finally made contact with the tribe. And the tribesmen greeted these strange men with their spears in hand, and within moments, all five missionaries were pierced to death. Now, the story didn't end there. Less than two years later, Jim's wife, Elizabeth, her, their daughter, Valerie, and other women were able to move to the Aka village, and through their labors, many Aka became Christians. The deaths of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and Roger Udarian and Ed McCulley and Pete Fleming are often described as a tragedy. Five young, promising lives snuffed out at the hands of warriors. It was not a tragedy. Jim's own words, likely that he learned from Matthew Henry's commentary, give us Jim's perspective on this event. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Beloved, to live and die in the service of Christ is never a tragedy. 
It is never a tragedy because when you live and die in service to the gospel, you are living and dying for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. No life ever lost for the sake of Jesus Christ is a tragedy. Nothing given up for the sake of the gospel is ever a tragedy. Their death was not a tragedy because when those five men opened their eyes after death, they awoke in the glorious kingdom of the Savior whom they loved so much and longed for others to know. In their death, they echoed the words of the Apostle Paul, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. That is not a tragedy. You know what a real tragedy is? A life that is lived for this world alone, for this temporary kingdom alone. When we live as if this world is all there is, this world is all that matters, and we give hardly more than a passing head nod to the world to come, that is a tragedy. When we spend our days just trying to climb the ladder, pouring ourselves into our work but paying no mind to our souls, that's a tragedy. When we raise our children with the goal that they become good athletes and get into a good school but do not diligently teach them to follow Jesus, that is a tragedy. Working 30 or 40 or 50 years so that we can retire and then we spend our lives staring at the television or indulging our, our hobbies and not pouring ourselves out for the eternal kingdom, that is a tragedy. And you and I, beloved, we are surrounded 24-7 by men, women, and children living out the greatest tragedy in the history of the world, wasting their life living for the wrong kingdom. And the danger for us is, is we don't realize how dangerous it is. It becomes normal. And so as believers, we need to ask the question, how do we ensure that our lives don't end in the same tragedy? that countless other lives will end in today because they were lives lived for the wrong kingdom. This passage is going to give us some thoughts on that, on how to live for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We're just going to look at three points. First, we're going to look at a final warning. Second, an unshakable kingdom. And third, we're going to look at acceptable worship. So this passage starts in verse 25 with a warning. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Now, this isn't the first warning Hebrews is given, but this time the author is saying, listen, put down whatever else you're doing, turn up your hearing aids, tune in, because you have to hear this. It may be the last time you ever hear it. You know, the opening of this passage reminds me of, of the woman who had been talking to her husband about some things that were really heavy upon her heart, and she watched and she noticed that he didn't seem to be paying attention to her, and she said, you're not even listening to me, are you? And he responded, that's a strange way to start a conversation. He hadn't been seen since. God's people have historically had a listening problem. At Sinai, they, they were hearing God, but they were terrified. They, they didn't want to hear any more of it. They asked God to be silent. But in later years, that, that fear shifted to sheer stubbornness, as I read in Numbers 14, explicitly refusing God's Word. 
So great was their disobedience there that God pronounced a judgment that everyone 20 years and older would not enter the land, but would rather die in the wilderness. That means that there were over a million corpses that littered the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land, all bearing witness to the fact that you cannot ignore God, you cannot refuse God and get away with it. We need to follow his argument here. He says, see to it that you don't refuse him who is speaking. And then he goes back and he says, for if they didn't escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns them from heaven. It's interesting. He's creating a comparison. He says, you know, back in the wilderness, Moses warned them and they didn't escape. He says, what about when one speaks to you and warns you from heaven? Look back at Hebrews 1 for a moment. He's bringing this argument full circle from the very beginning of chapter 1. Verse 1, he says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That would include Moses speaking to them, Moses warning them, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. In in other words, when it says, if they didn't escape Moses, how much less will you escape if you ignore the one who speaks from heaven? It's saying when God has spoken through his son, we must give him our ear. We must listen to him. You need to realize that if they disobeyed Moses' voice and they face judgment for it, if you continue to harden your heart and refuse the word of God, far worse will happen to you. That's what this pastor is saying to his beloved flock. How much less will we escape if we ignore the voice of Jesus who calls us to faith and repentance? One of the mistakes that people often make is they believe that because Jesus is kind and tender-hearted and welcoming, that they can live any way they want to, that they can ignore the word, that they can ignore the warnings, and it'll be okay because God will forgive them in the end. Hebrews flatly denies that. In the Old Covenant, they didn't escape judgment because they ignored Moses. Do you think you will escape judgment if you ignore the Son of God? That's, that's what, what, what it's asking here in verse 25. We need to understand this. If we have an image in our mind of Jesus who just sort of winks at sin and disobedience and in the end he'll let us in, it'll be okay, even if we've not followed him, even if we've lived lives of, of stubborn, stiff-necked rebellion— We've misunderstood the Christ of Scripture. Look with me at Psalm 2 for a moment. Psalm 2 is fascinating because it paints a picture of the forces and powers and principalities of this world, and they are, they're thumbing their nose at God. They're, they're stiff-necked. They will not repent. They will not return to Him. They seem to think they've gotten the upper hand. They say in verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. In other words, we're not going to serve this God. We're not going to waste time with him. Look what the psalmist says, starting in verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. This is talking about Jesus Christ. 
Repent is what it's saying. Come to him, lest he be angry and you perish in your way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Hear that last line. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That means if you ignore Christ and do not hearken to his warnings and come and find in him refuge for your souls, then one day in the day of judgment, you will encounter him and you will seek refuge from him because he will come in judgment and there will be no place to hide. We saw this last week. The Israelites came to Sinai. The ground trembled. It was a terrifying scene. Well, Hebrews is picking up on that again. And he says, you need to realize there's a greater shaking that's coming. Look at verses 26 and 27. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. He says, you know that terrifying scene back at Sinai? It's just a foreshadowing of what's going to happen when Jesus returns. There will be a greater shaking, and all the earth will tremble at the Lord's voice, and everything of this world will come crashing to the ground, and it will crumble to the dust. 2 Thessalonians 1 gives us a picture of this. It says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It's the fifth and final warning section in Hebrews. And it seems, if we're really listening to the voice of this pastor who, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has written this letter, he fears that some have not gotten the point yet. They, they, they come week after week. They hear the voice of Jesus Christ as the word is read and preached, but they're not listening. And he fears for them. And so five times he has given them this warning. Stephanie and I have flown a few times recently, and, and flying reminds me she is so much better of a human than I am. But you know the, the flight attendants that stand at the front of the plane and, and they give you the instructions and nobody pays attention to them. Well, last time we flew, I look around. I, I can sympathize with people who speak and nobody pays attention to them. And uh, nobody was paying attention except for my far better wife. And she's listening to every, every word they're saying. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, if this plane goes down and I need to figure out what to do with these face mask things and the underseat flotation device, I'm going to be okay because she's the only one in this plane actually listening. It's one thing not to listen when the flight attendant speaks. It's another thing not to listen when Jesus Christ speaks. Every time his word is read and preached faithfully, Jesus personally addresses his people. Do you realize this is the most dangerous place in the world to be? It's because if you sit under the ministry of the word week after week after week, and you learn to ignore it, you can become sermon-proof. You can give intellectual assent in your mind, but if it does not pierce your heart and transform your life and you do not live by obedience 
to Jesus Christ's word, you are in great danger. That's what the author of Hebrews wants to say to his flock. You've heard me week after week expound these truths, but you're hardening your heart, and I am concerned for you. And this is the last warning that he gives. Beloved, one day you will hear a final warning as well. You do not know when. You do not know the last time you will hear the call of the gospel. And if you do not repent and follow Christ, then your destiny, your future is far worse than the bones that were scattered between Egypt and Israel. If you refuse his warning, this may well be the last time you ever hear it. I want to plead with those of you in this room who know that you don't know, who hear the ministry of the word week after week and it has no effect on you. You have become sermon proof. I am terrified for you. I am terrified for you because there is nothing more dangerous than to stand before God and to say, well, think of all the sermons I've heard and to even be able to recite back to him all the theology that you've learned. And yet you did not live by faith in the Son of God. That is the most dangerous condition anyone on the face of the earth could be in. And I fear that some in this room may be in that condition week after week hearing the word and completely unchanged week after week after week. You have perfected the skill of being sermon proof. And so I plead with you, just as the author of Hebrews did, see to it that you do not refuse him, the Lord Jesus, as he speaks to you. Christ in his gospel has extended to us, has offered to us an unshakable kingdom, and that must be where our faith lies. If your faith rests that you've been a good person, that you taught Sunday school, that you attended church every week, that you tithe, those are all good things, but none of those can survive the shaking. Only faith in the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus Christ died for my sins, only that faith will survive. And so let's be as clear as possible. If you are living your life focused on this world and you're so consumed with this world that you have little time or energy or affection for Jesus Christ, then everything you accomplish in this world one day is going to come crumbling to the ground and there will be nothing left in the day of judgment. Hear the warning, beloved. Now, there are folks here, I think, and all of us probably as believers, we may drift in and out of this season, but we might would say, you know, it's not that I don't think this stuff's important, but I can't figure out how to fit it in with everything else I've got going on in life. I've got so much going on. There's so much on my mind. I'll hear that warning one day, but right now I've got to attend to the more important stuff. And if that's you, a couple of thoughts on that. First off, you won't. The more you create the pattern in your life of hardening your heart and resisting the Word of God, the more your heart will grow harder and harder and harder. And so if you are thinking, when I get out of school, or when, when my children are grown, or 
once we get through these teenage years or once I'm retired, once life slows down, then I'll start to take my walk with Jesus seriously. You probably won't. Your heart will only grow harder and harder and harder because you'll grow more and more and more sermon proof. Do not delay following Christ. But second, that idea that I'll get to it later, but I've got too much going on, it's symptomatic of a greater problem. If that's you, I want to take Jesus seriously, but there's so much else going on. It's symptomatic of a greater problem, and that is that you're living for the wrong kingdom. You're living for the kingdom that can be shaken. Hebrews calls us to live for an unshakable kingdom. That's the second thing I want you to see, this unshakable kingdom that it talks about. In talking about Sinai, the author was speaking of how volatile and displaying for us how temporal everything in this world is. It's shaking. It's trembling. And he's intending to point our focus towards a future kingdom represented by Zion. And here's what's so wonderful about this. Hebrews makes it clear that's not something that we simply wait for. That's something that is ours today. Look, look at verse 27. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We looked at this last week, but it's worth noting again, our primary citizenship as believers is in the kingdom of heaven. That is our permanent home. It's the kingdom to which we belong and the kingdom for which we ought to be focusing our attention. Think about this for a moment. Everything in this world that is not focused on and geared towards that coming kingdom is utterly passing away. The only thing with enduring permanence is the gospel. In the early 20th century, there was a, a cricket player. We don't think a whole lot about famous cricket players, but he was one of the most famous athletes in the world at his time. He was also an heir of great wealth. His name was C.T. Studd. And C.T. Studd, again, one of the wealthiest and most famous athletes of his time, he realized all of this is going to crumble away one day. And he sold or gave it all away, and he entered the mission field. And, and Studd wrote a poem. Let me just read you one line. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. It's the same thing Jim Elliott's saying, isn't it? He's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep, those things that'll be shaken and crumble to the ground in order to gain what he cannot lose, the eternal kingdom. Hebrews is saying we must set our attention and our affection and live our lives first and foremost for things that are eternal. Think about how much of our lives we invest into things that'll one day pass away. And I'm not saying we shouldn't go to work. We need to go to work, but we need to work as to the glory of God. I'm not saying young people shouldn't go to school. I'm saying they should go to school to the glory of God. But we sow so much of our lives into temporal things of sports and hobbies and work and politics and endless hours scrolling social media. None of them are inherently bad things, but none of them are ultimate things. And what they do to our souls is they cause us so much grief and so much anxiety because they're unstable. They're things that are so rooted in the kingdom of this world. And Hebrews is saying is you, you need to base your soul, rest your soul on the foundation of heaven. That's where you belong 
through Jesus Christ. All idols will one day crash to the ground. Whatever it is you cling to other than Jesus will one day come crashing to the ground. Whatever you're relying on, this is why we have to hold so tightly to our idols because we're scared they're going to break. We're scared they're going to let us down. Well, one day they will. There will be a shaking and none of our idols will be left. They will all be dust. Only what is eternal will last. The church of Jesus Christ needs to remember this because the church, it has been in our DNA. We have struggled with this for so long, for thousands of years. The church becomes so concerned with temporal things that we get kingdom confusion and we long for the wrong kingdoms. We seek acceptance and success in the wrong kingdoms. And so churches can be overly concerned with matters of politics, with matters of social justice, with financial issues, with cultural issues thinking, you know, if we get these right, then we can finally make an impact on the world. And it's done so much damage to churches because the problem is when we use worldly means to try to reach the world, the world ends up affecting us more than we affect the world. How do we become relevant to the culture today? This is what churches all over the place are asking. Well, let's soften our stance on marriage and gender. And we'll appeal to the world. Let's endorse this candidate or that candidate. Let's entertain people. Let's make the church look like the world. Beloved, the church has never found success by drawing strength from political, social, financial, or cultural institutions of the day. The church draws strength and success by being faithful to Jesus Christ. God's people of the wilderness. We're always going to be strangers in this world. We find success by being in the world, but not of the world. Whenever and wherever the institutions of this world crumble, we need to remember the church of Jesus Christ will endure through all things because he has built it upon a foundation that cannot be shaken. We, we studied this this morning during Sunday school, the intertestamental period, what happened between uh, the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. Well, the Persians rose and fell. The Greeks rose and fell. The Romans rose and fell. And you can go visit the Colosseum now for $25. All the kingdoms of this world will one day come to nothing, including America. They're made to be shakable. But you and I were made for the city that has, as Hebrews said it earlier, foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Christians must learn that the kingdom of Christ is the only thing that will last and that heaven is our true home. You know, it's so freeing to realize that. Because when our hearts are anchored to this world, to this kingdom, it creates so much fragility and anxiety and instability like at Sinai. But when our hearts are anchored to Jesus Christ and we live in thankful obedience to him, then our lives are anchored to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And Hebrews says that's what you're to live your lives for. And that's so relevant because remember Hebrews was written because there were people who were abandoning the church in order, in order to avoid persecution. 
They didn't want to be persecuted with the Christians, so they were going back to the temple. They were going back to Judaism. They were becoming apostate. And the author of Hebrews is saying, all that's one day going to pass away. Only thing that matters is the unshakable kingdom, the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. We need to remember this, beloved, that, that no matter what happens in this world, no matter how bad things may get, no matter what they look like from a political or cultural perspective, the church shall never perish her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Well, how do we respond then? We've heard the warning. We've, we've heard about this unshakable kingdom. Well, Hebrews is going to tell us a third thing here, and that is the proper response to it all is to offer acceptable worship. Look at verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The word worship in English comes from an old English word, worthship, in which the worth of something is proclaimed and expressed. And what Hebrews is saying is, if you've heard the warnings and you've grabbed hold of this unshakable kingdom, then the only right response is to worship God with reverence and awe. Gospel gratitude fuels the fire of Christian worship. And not just any worship, but it says here acceptable worship. In, in the Old Covenant, it was imperative that the people worship the way God instructed them to. And so Nadab and Abihu bring strange fire into the tabernacle and they're immediately destroyed. There is always a strong, willful tendency to deform worship in order to suit our desires rather than to do what is acceptable to God as he's shown us in his word. Acceptable worship is worship that God has, worship the way God instructed in scripture. We, We practice as a church what's called the regulative principle of worship, that only what scripture commands to be done in worship can we do. And the reason that matters is Worship is not about what you and I want. It's not about our preferences. It's about who God is. That's why verse 29 says, our God is a consuming fire. Those words consuming fire, they're not original to to Hebrews. Moses said them back in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Look there with me. This section is a warning against idolatry, offering your hearts to anything other than God. And in verse 23, God says through Moses, Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made you, and you make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Uh, This idea of a consuming fire, it's the picture of the utter burning holiness of God that he does not share his glory with another. You remember when Moses in Exodus 3 encountered the burning bush, he immediately took off his shoes, his sandals, because he was on holy ground. But particularly this picture of, of a consuming fire reminds us of the offering, the burnt offering in the Old Testament. Most of the sacrifices in the Old Testament 
A portion of them could be enjoyed by the priest, and a portion of them could be enjoyed by the worshiper. And there was one exception. The burnt offering, it was holy for God. It was completely for God, and so the fire would consume it. Nobody got any of it except for the hide. And so when Moses says in Deuteronomy 4, our God is a jealous God, Moses is saying our God does not share his worship with another. He's a consuming fire. It is all for him. You know, the same is true when we come in worship. Worship is not for us. We're not the consumers of worship. God is the consumer. Our concern in worship should not be, do I like what we did here? Do I like what we sang? Did I like the sermon? The concern ought to be, was God pleased with what was done? He is a consuming fire. The way we understand who God is will evidence itself in our worship, and especially in the attitude of our worship. Look what he tells us in verse 28. Because God is a consuming fire, we must worship him with awe and reverence. There should be a sense when we come into worship, when we gather in Christian worship, as joyful, as pleasant as it is to be with us, uh, to be together, there should be a sense in which we have stepped into the presence of the utter holiness of God. Our Our souls should be so deeply affected when we come in here that when God calls us into worship and when we praise Him and when we confess our sins and He ministers His Word to us, we understand that we are immediately in the presence of Jesus Christ. There is nothing casual in worship. I know sometimes churches advertise a casual service. There is nothing casual about worship because you are standing in the presence of a God who is a holy fire. And the only right way to approach Him in worship is with awe and reverence. These are not optional principles according to certain worship styles. They're to pervade every aspect of our worship. The Jewish people, before they gathered at Sinai, they consecrated themselves, they, they, they wore their best clothing, they ensured they were in a good place spiritually before they came, because they were going to meet with God. How much more then should we who have been saved by the gospel come into his presence with awe and reverence? The gospel doesn't diminish that sense of awe, it multiplies it. Our experience of worship ought to be exponentially more reverent than even Sinai. It's in that experience of genuine awe which recognizes that worship begins with God and His glory rather than with man and His desires. It's in that experience that we've truly worshipped Him. For God is a consuming fire. Remember, we said this last week, when we gather in corporate worship, the heart of the believer is transferred into heaven. John Owen said it this way, worship is performed in heaven. Though they who perform it are on earth, they do it by faith in heaven. This needs underscoring in our day, doesn't it? 
for the last 50 years or so, the church in, the, in America has tried so hard to make worship look more and more like the world, to diminish awe, to diminish reverence. Many churches go to great lengths to keep up with the trends of music, of architecture, of dress, with the world that surrounds it. And it's all constantly changing. And when the church is constantly changing, it conveys to the world a reflection of, of the constantly shifting relativism of our culture. The new and the novel are two of the greatest idols of the Christian church. But the Christian faith is not a new and changing thing. It is a timeless event. Worship, driven by the hour, simply cannot lift our hearts and our minds to the heart of a holy God with reverence and awe. But here's what's happened. The reason the church in the last 50 years has done this is we've seen worship as a product to be sold to consumers rather than an offering to the God who is a consuming fire. And so worship is catered not to what God wants, but to what fickle men want. And it's always changing. But here's the problem with that. If worship really does transport our souls to heaven... That's an experience that no unbeliever can have until they have first encountered Jesus Christ. So when we cater worship to what unbelieving world, uh, what the unbelieving world wants, we turn it into nothing more than a, 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 a pageant, than a concert. The only consumer of our God is wor- of our worship is God. And because he is immutable, our worship does not change every passing day when our culture changes. It's not shaped by the ever-changing winds of culture, but the never-changing prescriptions of God in his word. That's the acceptable worship God rightly deserves and demands as our response to his grace. So what about us for Scots? Have you heard the warnings? You never know when the last time is that you will hear. And if you continue to harden your heart, you are completely unprepared to stand before a holy God. Come to Jesus Christ in repentance. Turn away from the shakable kingdom of this world and live your life on the foundation of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And if you're an unbeliever, I plead with you to repent now. Repent now and believe the gospel. For those who are believers here, Let's build our lives more and more on the foundation of the world to come. The more we focus our hearts and our minds on the unshakable kingdom, the more we enjoy, we relish the heavenly gathering of the saints and all the benefits that are ours when we as believers gather at Mount Zion in worship week after week. How do we apply this text? First, a word to parents. Parents, teach your children to worship with awe and reverence. So often, parents want churches that will make church fun and exciting for children. And the worst thing in the world in the minds of so many parents is for a child to be bored 
That's the cardinal sin. Parents, do me a favor. Open your Bibles this afternoon and find one place in Scripture where someone encounters the presence of God and is bored by it. It's not there. Teach your children to worship with awe and reverence, and they will find that the God of the universe who invites us into his presence is not boring, but he is utterly enthralling. And what's the curriculum for you to teach your children that message? For you yourself to worship that way. As you worship with joyful awe and grateful reverence, your child sees that And your child realizes this isn't just something mommy and daddy do to go through the motions. This is what they love and what they live for. Teach your children to worship in awe and reverence. Second application. This is something I think Christians have struggled with it for many years, but I've noticed it particularly in the last three years. In the COVID age, whatever that means. So many Christians spend their days glued to the news. There's nothing wrong with watching the news as long as you have the discernment to know right from wrong. But when you're watching hours and hours and hours of headline news, it's going to affect you. And what often happens is that it draws the affections of your heart from the unshakable kingdom to a kingdom on this world that is very, very, very fragile. And so as long as your party is in office, all is well. But if your party's not in office, then the world is falling apart. If that is you, you're living for the wrong kingdom. It is not bad to be politically aware. We want you to vote. We want you to vote in accord with the scriptures. But you know, the, the 24-hour news cycle, it is designed to build in your heart angst and anxiety and fear about what is to come. What do you need to do? Turn off the news and open your Bible, please. Make that your habit. Your Bible ought to be receiving far more of attention than Fox News is. Open the Bible. Final application. Beloved, please be on guard against becoming sermon-proof. The way you do that, the way you resist being sermon-proof is by not only reading and listening to the Word, but meditating on it. Letting, it. letting it soak into your soul and inform your worldview. Go home after the service, review your notes, consider how you're living, figure out, am I living my life for an unshakable kingdom or a kingdom that is shakable? Lay yourself bare before the Word of God and let these truths sink down deep into your soul that you may be transformed by them. Because if you develop the pattern of sitting under the ministry of the Word or reading the Word on your own, but it's not penetrating your heart, you will turn yourself into a hard-hearted, sermon-proof churchgoer. Be warned of the danger of that. Hebrews warns us of the danger of that. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting of all the sermons you've ever heard but never applied, and seek to make application from this day forward. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we thank you for the truths of your word. There is so much here. We could spend months on this one passage, and yet, uh, Father, all of us have our marching orders. We need to heed the warnings. And I pray for those who are here right now and know that their lives are at odds with the Scriptures. They have not yielded themselves to Jesus Christ. 
I pray that you would pierce their hearts right now. Draw them to yourself that they may make a credible profession of faith in the Lord Jesus and serve him only. Father, I pray that you would build us up to long for and to love the kingdom that cannot be shaken, that that we would be established upon that foundation, that we would be able to say, take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise, that we would live every moment of our lives, Lord, for the kingdom to come, and let us worship you rightly. Lord, I pray that if any of us have an attitude of boredom about worship, that we would repent of that, that we would go to Isaiah 6, Revelation 4, Revelation 5, and so many other places that that teach us what's really happening when we worship, and that the next time we enter this room, we would do so in a spirit of awe and reverence. We pray this in Jesus' name.